From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. For the first time since 1947, uh, when the Air Force was created out of what was then the Army Air Corps, which my father was in at the time, the U.S. has created a new military branch, the Space Force. At first, I thought it was a really odd idea, but after reading a particular column from uh, Admiral uh, James Stravitis, who is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, I kind of changed my tune here a little bit. So, Admiral, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Really appreciate it. You're a Bloomberg Opinion uh, economist. You're also a U.S. Navy Admiral and former military commander of NATO. Talk to us, Admiral, if you will, about this Space Force, because I think a lot of people don't really understand what it is and what it's supposed to do. I can, Paul, and happy holidays. Let's start with uh, what most people have in their mind are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. And how soon are we going to be in manned spaceflight and have massive warships going into space? Listen, that's 150 to 200 years away, I would estimate. But what do we do now? We operate a complex, highly complex, and very large uh, constellation of satellites, as well as uh, a, a rising number of very small manned operations, a space station. All of those have military aspects to it. So the idea here much as you just alluded to, Paul, about the foundation of the U.S. Air Force, uh, back in the 40s, we wanted a, a group of people who would focus specifically on aviation and the operations of military activities in the air. Now we realize we need that same thing in space. So that's the idea here. I think it makes sense. It's going to be small. It'll start with a few thousand people. I don't think it'll ever get bigger than... 15 to 20,000 folks, which is, of course, a drop in the bucket in the big 1.2 million people that are in the Department of Defense. It's a good idea whose time has come. Admiral, as someone who grew up kind of a space kid, my dad worked on a lot of the early space programs. I think when I first heard about, you know, a sixth branch of the armed forces, I'm thinking like what to like, you know, have folks on the moon or <laughs> up in space. But but when you think about what our world has become in terms of data and information moving around the world, if you knocked out a nation's satellite system, you could really cripple them in a big way. And that's really what it's about, whether it's on a military uh, angle or, you know, pick your angle, right? Because there's so much floating out there in space. That is exactly right. And so um, what the Space Force, these few thousand people that start off are going to be doing is operating ground stations that control those satellites. They're going to move the satellites around. They're going to make sure our satellites are not attacked by anti-satellite weapons from Russia and China, both of whom, by the way, already 
have space forces. They will build and launch new satellites. So think of it as a way to uh, operationalize what is already happening in space, but assign a very specific group of young men and women to it. And I'll tell you, the response within the military has been fantastic. People really want to join the Space Force and be part of it. And ultimately, to pick up your point, um, there will also be a heavy cyber and cybersecurity component in this. So I could see this evolving into a space and cyber force over time. Admiral, can you give us a, just kind of a sense of the competitive landscape of space. Where is the U.S. relative to other countries? I guess we're talking about China and Russia, but just give us a sense of how you think the the theater of space is playing out. Um, at the moment, uh, the United States still enjoys, I would say, a lead overall in our ability to construct, launch, and operate um, massive satellites in space that are capable of high-end communication that drive the global positioning system, GPS, and also um, monitors and provides intelligence functions, collecting everything from communications to taking photographs of the Earth to looking at infrared signatures. For example, if North Korea launches this Christmas surprise and decides to launch a long-range ballistic missile, the first indication will be our constellation of satellites seeing a heat signature when that launch uh, goes off on the North Korean peninsula. So we are the leader. I'd say number two is probably Russia, although number three is China, and they are gaining fast, as you would think. Um, all of this sort of parallels the standings, if you will, in cyber and cybersecurity, where the U.S. has a lead, uh, Russia's quite good, China coming up behind. Next tier down uh, are the European nations, France operates capable satellites. Uh, Japan does. Um, the Australians have a small capability. But it's really the big three in space at the moment. Um, it, you know, it's interesting. And I'm curious when I think about, I don't know, fiscal policy, I mean, what would it cost to put this into place? Because you say it doesn't need to be a huge um, force, at least not initially. Indeed. Um, I think it will be tens of billions of dollars, which sounds like a lot, but hold on. The U.S. defense budget overall is $700 billion, and I think that the, the estimates for the Space Force will be in the initially $10, $20, 30000000000 billion. It might at some point uh, get up to be 8 to 10 percent of the overall defense budget, and I, I want to make a, a very important point here. Um, none of that money and none of the people involved here are new additions. This is simply repurposing, at least at the moment, repurposing principally Air Force, but also some Army, some Navy, will go out of their current service and go into the Space Force. And the funding is already locked in place, um, and it is in the range, as I mentioned, of tens of billions of dollars. So think of it as a 6% mm -hmm. of the defense budget now, perhaps trekking upward, which would make sense. Admiral, I just want to switch gears real quickly in the last question here. China, Navy, we understand that China recently launched its first, I guess, home-built aircraft carrier. Can you tell us what you know about that carrier and what you believe the, the future of naval uh, forces for China will be? Uh, indeed, very significant. Um, China has previously purchased um, older used uh, platforms from Russia and re-engineered uh, them into their carriers. This is the first, their third aircraft carrier coming off the ways. 
It's about two-thirds of the size of our U.S. 100,000-ton Ford-class carrier, so it'll be immediately one of the largest in the world. Um, and they already have, here's the important point, three more carriers under construction, the sixth of which is going to be nuclear-powered. The previous ones are conventional-powered. So clearly, China is stepping up its maritime operations. They want to interact globally and not right. just operate locally in the South China Sea. Well, I have to say, this is a fascinating column and so great yep. to uh, check in with you. Admiral James Storitas, he is columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, uh, of course, um, former military commander of NATO, retired U.S. Navy admiral. And I do want to point out he's got a new book that came out this year, Sailing True North, Ten Admirals and the Voyage of Character. So something Christmas great reading. for the holiday, holiday reading. shopping <laughs> list, right? For those gifts you still need, uh, definitely check it out. to one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg today. It's about China's bite, um, bite dance, I believe it is, weighing a sale of its addictive video app, TikTok. Uh, we've got that story we're watching. We're also watching uh, Uber's co-founder, Travis Kalanick, departing from the company's board at the end of the year. There's a lot going on when it comes to the world of tech. So let's get a roundup with Shara Ovaday. She's Bloomberg Opinion Technology columnist. She joins Paul and me in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So much for a quiet day, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Never a boring day in technology. So talk to us about ByteDance. First of all, I feel like there is folks out there who might not be familiar with what ByteDance is, but it's pretty big in China. It is very big in China. Uh, it owns two, at least two popular apps in China. There's um, kind of a news feed kind of um, mm -hmm. app called Totiao. And then what is called in the rest of the world, uh, TikTok. It goes by a different name in China. But TikTok is basically a short video app that lets people set sort of skits or dance routines to music, and it has gotten very popular quite quickly in the U.S. and in India and some other places outside of China. So the issue is the U.S. federal government has some concerns about TikTok, and that's and that's making ByteDance maybe rethink maybe its ownership? Yes. So there have been some concerns, I would say, on both sides of the political aisle in Congress about TikTok. And the concerns are basically, they, they stem from the ownership of, of TikTok by a Chinese internet company. So the worries are twofold. One is that TikTok, again, because it's owned by a Chinese company, is collecting data about users in the United States that can be used or misused by the Chinese government. The second worry is that, um, again, because of TikTok's ownership uh, by a Chinese internet company, that it engages in censorship of content outside of China that um, would be that is relatively common inside of China, right? That Chinese internet companies are expected to scrub their services for content that is generally not prohibited by the Chinese government, whether it's talking about Hong Kong protests in a certain way or other things. Um, TikTok and ByteDance, for, for their part, say that they segregate data about Chinese about non-Chinese internet users from what's happening in China, and that they do not engage with censorship, engage in censorship outside of China, in the same way they engage inside of China. It seems kind of extreme. Now, is it like, is this akin to like Google selling, I don't know, YouTube or, or you know what I mean? One of its properties? Like, it just seems extreme. And I'm yeah, I agree. And we that. should say that our colleagues at Bloomberg News said that this is one option under consideration by ByteDance to calm some of the anxiety in 
in U.S. political circles about the ByteDance ownership of TikTok, that maybe they'll sell a majority stake or, or some portion of TikTok to presumably to a U.S. financial player. Uh, it does seem extreme. We'll see if that happens. And we'll see, honestly, even if they sell all or a majority stake of TikTok, whether that actually changes how some of the hardliners feel about ByteDance ownership of this popular they, U.S. internet service. And do they potentially, who do they sell it to? And do they potentially sell it, like, forgive me, and I'm always suspicious <laughs> when it comes to some of this stuff, but I mean, I do wonder, do they sell it to an entity that is still somehow Chinese-owned? Yeah, fair ways? enough. I, I think that the question will always be, even if um, TikTok is sold or a majority of TikTok is sold to a U.S. company, if that really means that a ByteDance will be completely hands-off. Yeah. I think if I'm, I'm just going to put my investment banker hat on here, it, I, my advice to them would be, if you think there is some kind of risk coming from the U.S. government, you better sell now before that becomes apparent because that can impact valuation. Is that maybe some of their thinking, do you think? Certainly. I think that's a legitimate concern that, look, ByteDance is now, by by most accounts, the most highly valued um, private technology company in the world. The valuation is something like $75 billion. Wow. And the company wants, at least by news reports, wants to go public relatively soon. And I think there's an open question about whether um, ByteDance can go public if it has all of these questions hanging over its head about uh, being whether TikTok is allowed in the United States. And also whether the U.S. government it will become uh, kind of a, a standard setter for governments elsewhere in the world also questioning the Chinese ownership of TikTok. This, that, this, this, go this goes to that, you know, the uh, Cold War for technology that people are concerned about. There'll be technology for the West and the che yep. technology yep, for totally. China. This would be another, I guess, brick in that wall, if you yeah, will. Yeah, and look, I think this is somewhat new ground for the United States. This is really the first time that the U.S. government and U.S. citizens, honestly, have had to reckon with the idea that there is now a very popular internet service that is not run by an American company. And what mm -hmm. does that mean? Yeah, and I do think about going back to if they want to go public, and right, they've got some interesting investors in terms of ByteDance. I think is it um, SoftBank, Sequoia Capital, right? Is that correct? Those are some companies I think maybe potential buyers. Or buyers of it. Potential, I'm not but, sure. I, but I do wonder if they do want to go public, right, what they need to do in order to make that happen and to kind of clean it up, clean up the business. Well, look, there, there are internet companies in China that have gone public and that have done very well. Uh, Meituan, right. which is a sort of mostly a food delivery and travel services company in China. There's companies like Alibaba and Tencent that, again, their operations are largely in China that are public companies and have done very, very well. So there's a precedent for being a China-focused internet company. ByteDance is a little bit of a different animal, again, because it's one of the very, very few Chinese internet companies that has successfully proven popular outside of its home country. Carol, you were absolutely correct. Early investors, according to Bloomberg reporting, early investors include SoftBank, uh, Sequoia Capital, and Susquehanna International. So some big, big players. Well, and, this, I, yeah. and I just do wonder about, right, investors who are saying, okay, now we want to see, you know, make our money, right? We invest in and, and, you know, at some point you want to take this company public. So I just do wonder, you know, the kind of pressure on them to kind of do something and do something soon. And look, there are also pedestrian business um, questions, big business questions about ByteDance as well, whether its app, particularly TikTok, can prove lasting outside of China, and also whether it can generate enough money, 
enough revenue to justify its very large valuation. We have to because we have you here. Just really quickly, Uber, Travis Kalanick, like, goodbye. Yeah, I mean, this <laughs> this has been coming for a long yeah. time, right? That Travis Kalanick was forced out of his company two and a half years ago, and he's been selling, uh, apparently he's now sold his entire stake right, we've been in Uber for that. billions of dollars. And so I think it was inevitable this has been a long divorce. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that's right. So he was forced out and, you know, just a couple of years ago and now he's selling, you know, over, I guess most of his stock over $2 billion now stepping off the board officially. So it seems like it's a clear break here from the, one of the co-founders uh, and the company. Shira Oviday, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Shira is a technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here on Christmas Eve in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I tell you, there's usually so much buzz in the Bloomberg building, particularly on the sixth floor. It is like a beehive There's today. nobody there. There's <laughs> nobody here. So, But we are here at Bloomberg Radio, and Shira is here working hard. Uh, and I always say, uh, you know, her columns are great. You should check out all the Bloomberg Opinion columns. They're great stuff. You can find that on the website, Bloomberg.com slash opinion or on the terminal OPIN Go. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You know, one of the fastest growing areas that just amazes me in financial services is this whole ETF issue. There seems like there's an ETF for just about everything out there. I love to get up to date on what's going on with the ETF world. Denise Crisco can help us. She is president and co-founder of Vident Investment Advisory. She joins us on the phone from New Jersey. Denise, thanks so much for joining us. One thing I want to start with is something I have no idea how it works is what is an active ETF? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Right. An active ETF is essentially uh, an active open-end investment fund that is in, in within the ETF wrapper. So unlike a passive or an index fund where you're very tightly tr tracking a, a specific uh, index, which is being calculated every day, um, active incorporates the you know strategy, investment philosophy, and quite honestly, um, IP of a specific uh, asset manager. So, Denise, why an active ETF versus a mutual fund? And I know there's differences in terms of when they trade, when they price, and I guess tax implications. But tell me, why would I choose that over a mutual fund? Sure. Well, you know, right now you you um, you know hit the hit the uh, nail on the head. The the biggest differences are with the ETFs, of course, are uh, tax advantages and ability to trade. Um, with active ETFs, uh, the tax advantages have really been very limited until more recently. Um, recently, the SEC passed what has been referred to as the ETF rule, Rule 6011, um, which really has created a much more consistent and even playing field across you know all ETFs. ETFs and potential ETF sponsors. And so active ETFs will also be able to take advantage of some of the tax uh, advantages of the ETF structure. Um, that's why we believe here at Bident that active ETFs are going to 
very likely become more popular as we go into 2020 and beyond uh, because until now you've had a number of active um, mutual fund managers or active managers with other product types, for example, that uh, would be interested perhaps in in an ETF, but realizing that um, the tax advantages weren't really equivalent for active ETFs, um, weren't so inclined to launch a product, as well as the fact that, you know, ETFs also require daily transparency of holdings, which um, was something that many asset managers were not interested in. Um, That's also changed recently as well. So there's a lot on the horizon for, for 2020. So Denise, give us a sense of the cost structure, cost advantages of active ETFs versus mutual funds. Right. So to the retail investor, the the cost savings can be significant. Um, With the ETF, the uh, expense ratios um, are typically lower than with mutual funds, Um, although, you know, you do have to weigh that against uh, brokerage costs, commission fees, and importantly, the the bid-ask spread, of course, on any ETF, um, notably active ETFs. So, you know, the costs um, could be... uh, advantageous to the retail investor. Um, definitely to the asset manager, uh, costs are, are generally lower uh, to to run such a vehicle. And so that would be another reason why they may be attractive. Denise, I do wonder too that if I'm going to do an active ETF and I think about funds, of, about some of the fees and so on and so forth, I mean, why would I do anybody but the biggest, whether it's Vanguard or State Street, right? Because I'm assuming they're going to have the lowest fees. Uh, that's right. I mean, they'll have the lowest explicit fees, the lowest expense ratio. And, you know, the majority of assets are flowing to the largest uh, ETF issuers um, these days. We work, you know, with numerous smaller and mid-sized firms and some larger firms as well um, who, you know, have um, unique ideas, uh, have very, you know, different perspectives, um, have really innovated um, to create strategies um, that really can't be found anywhere else. We we manage almost four and a half billion dollars of assets, and it's right. all t- almost exclusively to customize indices. And so it's these types of products, uh, investors that are looking for something maybe different than what they offer. No, and you know, I respect that. I just, you know, what's what's interesting about the ETF world, I kind of said to Paul coming in, oh man, the ETF world kind of drives me crazy. <laughs> because I do feel like it's, you know, every month, every week, we have somebody new, you know, coming on with a new ETF idea. And I, and I feel like until you have some history, you know, a few years in to get an idea of how these performs, you know, I think for investors, they have to be very careful. It is it is a challenge, especially from, you know, some of the smaller firms that, that many investors may not be as familiar with. Um, they're looking for longer-term track records. Um, you know, we have had a number of uh, funds also that have performed really very well, uh, funds that we have sub-advised for our clients that have really had excellent performance but unfortunately weren't able to garner those assets and, you know, ultimately closed, you know, which has really been a phenomenon we've seen industry-wide. Mm-hmm. I think that will continue as well. You know, as we go into 2020, we see additional launches. There's going to be a lot of excitement potentially to launch uh, active ETFs, especially now that there's uh, options available for non-transparent and semi-transparent active ETFs. Um, you know that, What does that, that mean? Is- that to me, I want transparency. What is semi <laughs> or non-transparent? Forgive me. What does that mean? Yeah, so essentially, you know, the SEC has approved uh, programs that uh, have been created um, to uh, not necessarily fully disclose the holdings of the ETF, subject to 
as you can imagine, numerous other restrictions as well. Um, in the non-transparent uh, option, for example, um, they would the holdings are actually traded in and out of a blind trust so that those positions aren't known publicly and the asset manager can, you know, retain, um, you know, the IP, I suppose, and, and not be divulging, you know, their active management strategy. And the semi-transparent, it's a bit of a hybrid. Um, there is, uh, there are, you know, holdings that are released on a daily basis, although... Right. Those don't look exactly like the true underlying portfolio. With the idea being that it is hard for someone to maybe copycat or you know try to trade that strategy on their own on the side. All right, going to leave it on that note. Hey, Denise, happy holidays, Denise Crisco, president and co-founder of Ident Investment Advisory, joining us on the phone. tell you there's a great great story on the bloomberg today and i love the opening paragraph china last week commissioned its first home-built aircraft carrier to protect its military might it's now on a mission to create quote aircraft carrier-sized investment banks to take on wall street giants shri not rachin joins us he's from bloomberg uh news he covers all things finance he joins us here in our bloomberg interactive broker studio so that's just a great view of how china's thinking about the investment banking business. And I spent most of my life in investment banking and I hadn't really thought about that there isn't a China-sized investment bank out there to compete against the Goldman Sachs and the Morgan Stanleys. What are they thinking these days? And then that's the reason they're possibly thinking about it at this stage, right? Uh, and this is a fabulous story. When you look at some of the stats in this piece, uh, China has about 131 securities firms. All of their assets combined is equal to one Goldman Sachs. The trillion-dollar balance sheet that Goldman Sachs has, it takes about 130 Chinese investment banks to get there. China has large-scale commercial banks, right? ICBC has a much bigger balance sheet than even JP Morgan, uh, north of $4 trillion. But when it comes to investment banks, they never really had a large-scale player. And that is critical, especially if you look at the global view of the big financial players who think, especially inside the Chinese market, you're closer to the stock starting block rather than having a fully developed market. So as the market opens up, as more and more international players come in, the local banks have to figure out a way to compete with them. And you possibly have to consolidate, possibly have to think about mergers to be able to go toe-to-toe with them. So Sri, is the goal here about creating this massive global bank that ultimately will be funding and working with companies around the globe? Or is this really about helping out Chinese companies and building Chinese industry? I guess two things there. Uh, If you look at Alibaba, uh, the one thing you've learned from that is you don't necessarily have to be a large-scale global player to be a successful Chinese company. Uh, That market is big enough. There are enough people there and the market's developed enough to make a lot of money just focused on China. But, uh, I, I mean, to your question, I am interested in finding out if part of their goal is also to make sure that these firms can also go across the globe and compete with the Goldmans and the Morgan Stanleys of the world. Right. And there's an interesting cautionary tale there if you look at it. If you if you go back to late 80s, early 90s, at that time you had a uh, smallish Deutsche Bank that was looking outside a sleepy industrial German economy trying to take itself across the world. Uh, through the 90s and the 2000s, Deutsche Bank did become a Wall Street powerhouse, a, a massive fixed income shop, made a ton of money, but look at where we are right now. They're on the retreat and so are a lot of their European uh, peers. And the ones who are benefiting from that are the large US banks that seem to be beefing up. So if they want to plot sort of this global expansion, 
they have to make sure that they can get full steps. So I have to ask a question. Why haven't, why hasn't China created a much more vibrant investment banking industry as it has for, say, the commercial banking side? Is there something structural there? Or if you're just focusing internally in China, you don't necessarily need these big investment banks? My guess would be it's perhaps more structural. You probably don't have an economy that has the full-time requirements of a large-scale investment bank. Even the uh, securities firms that we talk about in this story, uh, they say a lot of them are not full-service investment bank. Even if they're small, they're not full-service investment bank. A lot of them seem to be doing business with the, uh, you know, your mom-and-pop retail customers, which which is not a way to compete with the Goldman Sachs and the Morgan Stanley's of the world. But now as the economy opens up, now as they're looking to deepen the footprint of their, uh, uh, you know, capitalistic economy, even even under the control of the government, if you're looking to sort of strengthen the pillars of uh, what drive modern business, if you do that, you definitely need large-scale investment banks to service that, to raise money, to help companies go public, to do trading, everything right. that comes with a full-service investment bank. But is it really opening up? It's, what, $45 trillion financial industry. Is China truly opening it up so that, any global bank, and I think about the U.S. big players, will they really be able to kind of set up shop there and operate like they do around the rest of the world? That's the goal. By the end of next year, a number of the U.S. firms, a number of the large international banks will be able to take 100% controls of their subsidiaries. Uh, some of them already are in the process. Others have applied for it. They have been waiting on it for a while. The Chinese promise has always been there. You almost feel like these banks have been knocking at the door for a while, but you really haven't gotten the fruits out of it yet. And you have to remember with the backdrop of the trade war, maybe some of that has also delayed the process and there is some level of nervousness when you talk to the CEOs of the US investment banks as to when that promise will materialize. But it is a promise they believe in and it is a promise that they're willing to invest in. That's interesting. I think the, yeah. uh, as I think about some of the US firms, they've been knocking on the door in China for a long time. Um, do they view that as a big, big growth opportunity? Absolutely. They're ready and eager to jump in. What has stopped them is not uh, their hesitation or uh, trepidation on their part. What has stopped them is their ability to jump into the market. There is, if not a no entry sign, at least a barbed wire gate that sort of makes sure that you can't really jump into the market full time. But uh, the banks are eager to get in there. As they look, just quickly, about 40 seconds, or as they look to expand Shri, I mean, is there government support behind it, or is this truly a private enterprise, and as private as it can be in China? Well, if you have to create an aircraft carrier-sized <laughs> rival to Goldman Sachs among Stanley, you, you, you better hope there is a government will behind that. Uh, but we have seen that in the past, especially in a system like the, the Chinese economy, the way it operates. If there is government bill, will, a lot can get done, yeah. and uh, they will need a lot of it to make sure that they can create an institution like that. Right, but then you see how the world views it because right. there yep. is government involvement. Shri, thank you so much. Always appreci appreciate it. Shri Natarajan, he is finance reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Fascinating story, really among is. the most read, and I'll put it out yeah. on our Twitter feeds because uh, it definitely is something you should check out. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.